The passage today comes from John chapter 4, and it's a bit portioned. So John chapter 4, 7 to 30, and 39 to 42. So um, if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to open them up with me. And read, read with me, please. This is God's word. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, So you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. And verses 39 to 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is God's word. Um, Before I start preaching today, I want to show you guys a short video. Um, So, it's going to come through this projector, so I'm just going to leave the mic. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often 
food life-saving station. The building was just like a hut and there was only one boat and a few devoted members that constantly watched over the sea and with no thought for themselves went out day or night tirelessly searching for lost people. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little station and so it became famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding areas wanted to join the station and give their time and their money to support the work that they did. New boats were bought, new crews were trained, and the little life-saving station started to grow. Some of the new members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place to be should be provided for the first refuge of those being saved at sea. So they replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture into enlarged buildings. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they decorated it and furnished it as a sort of a club. Less of the members were now interested in going out to the sea on a life-saving mission, so they hired a lifeboat crew to do the work. The mission of saving lives was still given lip service, but most were too busy or lacked the necessary commitment to take part in the life-saving activities personally. Around about this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast and, the, and they hired crews to go out with boatloads of people coming in off that ship, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and they were sick and they had black skin and some spoke strange languages and the beautiful new club got considerably messed up. So the property committee immediately had showers built outside of the club where the victims of the shipwreck would be cleaned up before they came inside. At the next meeting there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities altogether because it was unpleasant and it was a hindrance to the normal life of the club. But some members insisted that life-saving was their primary purpose and they pointed out that they were still called to be a life-saving station. But they were voted down and told if they wanted to save the life of all the various kinds of people that were shipwrecked in those waters out there, then they could build their own life-saving station down the coast. So they did. And years went by, and the new station experienced the same changes that the old had. They evolved into a club, and yet again another life-saving station was founded. And if you visit that seacoast today, you'll find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, but now most of the people drown. Okay, um, can I just get the light back on, please? Just the top one. Thanks. Um, yeah, I don't know if you guys have heard that little parable, that little story before um, about this life-saving station. Uh, it's a, if you think about it, it's a bit of a sad little parable. Um, this little life-saving station over time begins to deviate from why it was even there in the first place. You know, it started off for the purpose of saving lives, people shipwrecked in the ocean, uh, and then eventually it grows into a club, and it forgets its original purpose altogether. And then they start to make more clubs exclusively along the coast. 
uh, and they're no longer really life-saving clubs, even though they might call that uh, call themselves that in, in in name. And it's a good analogy of actually what happens in many churches today. Um, to be honest, I think it's even a good analogy of what has happened in our church. You know, when you become a Christian, if you think back to that moment or that season of your life when you first became a Christian, a believer, do you remember that initial excitement or even that initial desire to tell your friends, to tell your family, to tell your colleagues, sometimes people you don't even know that well, just about Jesus, about who He is and what He has done for you. But then, eventually, you find yourself in a church community and it becomes familiar, becomes easy, um, it becomes comfortable. And the, the mindset changes to, hey, let's just keep things mostly the way they are. Let's not rock the boat. Uh, let's just not really change anything, maybe not even you know, grow beyond this size. And you have a community all of a sudden that is very intimate, but it's insular. A community that's comfortable, but complacent. Over the past few weeks in this series, we're answering the question, what does a maturing member of the World Church look like? And we've said three things so far, right? Number one, it's a person who matures by meditating on the Word. It's like a tree in Psalm 1. Number two, it's a person who matures in community as we speak the truth and love to each other. So we're not just solitary trees, but we're aspen trees. We're trees with other trees. And number three, last Sunday... Uh, it's a person who serves the community with their gifts, driven by love, and matures as part of the body. And these three qualities about you know what it looks like to be a member of the World Church, they're, they're, they're great, right? Um, but they are about us. They're about life in this community, how we do life together, how we love each other, how we serve each other. It's got nothing to do with anyone beyond that. And the Bible does not talk about the church in that way. The Bible doesn't talk about the church as a community that exists for itself, but as a community that exists for the people actually out there to show the world who Jesus is as we mature. And when we forget that, just like this little life-saving station, um, this place is going to fall apart. What does a maturing member of the World Church look like? Number four, a person who is on mission to the outsider. Today in our passage of John 4, uh, which you guys might know quite well, it's not a passage often used to talk about mission, but we're going to see Jesus himself showing us what it looks like to be on mission to the outsider. It's going to be a challenging example, but it's also going to be comforting. We're going to see three things. A different welcome for the outsider, a different well for the outsider, and a different worship for the outsider. So number one, a different welcome for the outsider. So on the surface of it, in this passage, we just read that Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman at a well and you might think, oh, there's what, what's, uh, what's peculiar about that? Well, there are two things about this encounter that are highly unusual. 
So number one, she's a Samaritan, and number two, she's a woman. So number one, she's a Samaritan, and if you didn't know, the Samaritans were a mixed race descended from Jews who over time had come to worship other gods in addition to the God of Israel. So the Jews, like Jesus, who was right there, considered them to be unclean. And in fact, for a Jew to even touch a jar that had been touched by a Samaritan person would be considered unclean. That's why it says in verse 9, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Uh, And just a bit more of a history lesson, uh, to make matters worse, in about 400 BC, uh, 400 years before this incident, the Samaritans went and they built their own temple to the Israelite God at a place called Mount Gerizim. And they said, you know, this is the real one, not, not the one in Jerusalem, this is the real one. So there's just a lot of disconnect, there's enmity, uh, there's a separation between Jews and Samaritans. So it's highly unusual that Jesus would even speak to this woman, let alone ask for a drink of water. But number two, she's a woman. And that might sound very sexist to you today. But in this culture, I want you to listen to a Jewish rabbinic teaching that was taught as law during this time. Different cultural context to the one that we're in. This is what it says. This is law at the time. A man should not talk with a woman on the street, not even his own wife, and certainly not someone else's wife because of gossip. It is forbidden to give a woman any greeting. It's pretty intense. But such was the time, such was, such was the culture of the time. So when Jesus sits down at this well and he asks this Samaritan woman for a drink, she makes sense in verse 9 when she says, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? a woman of Samaria. She is so shocked that Jesus is even speaking to her. And towards the end of their encounter, the passage tells us, you know, that this woman has had five husbands. And we're going to see that Jesus already knew that she had five husbands. He's the one who eventually brings it up in verse 18. I want you to imagine for a second if a woman who had been married five times walked into our church today. How would you feel? How would you find it trying to start a conversation with her? How would you feel about inviting her to join us for lunch after worship? What about even a woman who has been divorced once? I think the reality is, as much as you try to be polite, I think many of us would feel uncomfortable. And at the back of your mind, you have these niggling thoughts. Um, She must have some issues in her life. You know, that's why she keeps having these divorces. And maybe there's something quite unlovable and wrong with her that these men keep divorcing her. I think most of us would struggle to have a comfortable conversation uh, with a person who has even just been divorced one time. And I'm acknowledging that that's a reality, but I also want to say I think that's something we shouldn't be okay with. Like, it shouldn't sit right with us because we're not a club. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about it, but I just... Are you challenged by this example that we see in Jesus? 
as he sits down with a Samaritan woman, every reason to be disconnected and not extend any kind of welcome to her. This is something that Jesus cares about. We see in this encounter he, that he extends a, a different kind of welcome to the outsider than the kind of welcome that we're used to. You know, the welcome of the world, which is based on having a common interest or maybe a common background or a common life stage, common personality, common socioeconomic status. Isn't it so much easier to welcome people like that when they're just like you? When you already know that there's going to be things to talk about. But this is a welcome that's radically different to the welcome of the world. When Jesus asks this woman, give me a drink, he breaks through every single barrier, social, ethnic, religious, emotional, just to have a conversation uh, with a Samaritan woman. And um, I think it should, at the very least, make us think, is this a reality in our church community? When people who are different to us walk through these doors, do we extend this different welcome to them? To be honest, I think we haven't. I think it's been really hard to do. I think over time we've become really comfortable and familiar and insular. And whether it's intentional or not, we find it hard to extend this kind of different welcome to the outsider. So I just want you guys to sit with that for a moment. Think about that. Because it's, it's good that we should not be okay with that. It's good that that shouldn't sit right with us. This is not the example that Jesus gives to us for his church. But secondly, you know, the next thing that we see in this passage is a different well for the outsider. So after Jesus comes to this woman and he asks her for a drink, we see in verse 10 that he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Oh, how the tables have turned. Jesus initially asks her for water, right, the Samaritan woman, and then he's offering her now water, living water, the gift of God, and Jesus is the one who gives it. What's going on here? Why have the tables all of a sudden flipped and turned upon this woman? Well, the Samaritan woman says to Jesus, a little confused in verse 11, So you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So when this woman hears Jesus turning the tables on her and, and, and saying to her, I've got water for you. If you knew who, who it was that was offering this water to you, you'd, you'd ask him for a drink. She thinks he's talking about real water, like some kind of magic water that'll never make her thirsty again. And so she asks him, where can I find this water? You know, this water over here, it's, it's from the well that um, our ancestor Jacob gave to us. And she's looking for this special magic living water that she thinks Jesus is talking about. So Jesus says to her in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water, and he's talking about the water in the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
Like I said, some of you guys know this passage quite well. But what exactly is this living water? Um, you know, I remember the first time I agreed to participate in a high-intensity interval training workout with Heidi. It was called Insanity, and that should have told me everything I needed to know right there and then. But I said yes anyway. I said yes to Insanity because I was interested. And the day came, and I was not going to back out. I was going to keep to my word, and, and I did it. Not all of it. Not even half of it. Like 30% of it. And Heidi was next to me, doing it like a Terminator. And <laughs> I was embarrassed because she kept laughing at me. At a certain point, I was on marble, face down. I didn't care. My lungs felt like they were about to explode. When I finally calmed down my breathing and I came to, my throat was so parched. I got up, I went to the kitchen, got a big cup of water. As soon as that water hit my throat, it was essential, it was as essential to satisfying the need that my body was yearning for and crying out for as was my life, my, my very life being saved. In this living water that Jesus is talking about, she tell us right here that it's definitely something that satisfies us, but it's not just something that satisfies us. It's something that is as essential for us as water is for the human body to keep living. You know, you can live without food for quite a long time. You can't live without water for more than a few days. So Jesus now moves from a metaphor of living water to real talk, real life. And he does this by making a different request to the first one. He says, okay, this living water that I'm talking about, it's going to never make you thirsty again. It's going to not just satisfy you, but fill an essential life need that you have to, to live. And next he says, go and bring your husband. And we know what this woman's history with men is like. It's pretty messed up. It's pretty sordid. She has been married and divorced at least four times. And she doesn't think that Jesus knows. So she quickly responds in verse 17, I have no husband, right? Jesus says, go bring your husband. She says, I have no husband. And I was thinking about this, and it reminded me of when I, I've walked down you know, the street before, and I don't know if you've done this, you walk right into a spider web, and you go crazy, and you do this weird move, and then you quickly look around, hoping that no one else saw what just happened, right? Everyone else, it looks like you burst into spontaneous dance, but you're like, everything's good, just keep calm, just keep walking ahead casually and um, hoping no one will have noticed, that's what this woman is doing here <laughs> with a short response, I've got no husband. And Jesus, you won't know. He won't take the conversation there. But Jesus says, no, you're right. You don't have a husband because you've had five husbands and the one you have right now is not your husband. Jesus here is not trying to name and shame her. If he wanted to do that, he would not have broken centuries of religious, ethnic, and social tradition just to talk to her. Now he's patiently peeling back the layers of this woman's heart, and he's helping her to see 
that she lives and exists right now in a desert place. She's so thirsty. Five husbands, and now the one that you have is not even your husband. You know, she's been trying to fulfill this thirst in relationships, and it's not working, clearly. And he's saying, it's, you can see that, right? It's not working. Every single human being, every one of you guys here today, has this kind of thirst. To be satisfied, to be filled, and every single human being will go to some kind of well to satisfy that thirst. I know our church is called the well. I'm not talking about church. I'm just talking about a source of water. Looking for something that will satisfy our thirst. But there are so many leaky wells out there that eventually run out of water. See, relationships are amazing. And I'm sure you guys have some amazing relationships in your life. Family, friends, colleagues. They're amazing but they fail. And I'm sure some of you have experienced that too. Achievements are great. They make us feel recognized and affirmed. But you guys know that those feelings fade. Experiences are exciting and enjoyable and they're so memorable, but they're temporary. And you can label that inner emptiness, that inner desert place as drive, and your anxiety as hope in an effort to address that thirst. But it will still be there because it's a spiritual thirst, and you've been trying to satisfy it from all of these leaky wells. We need a well that will never leak, never run dry, never be closed off to us, a, a well that we can always come to, to drink from, and have that deep-seated thirst inside of us satisfied. That's what Jesus means when he says you'll never thirst again. He doesn't mean you drink from this well one time and it's magic, you'll never thirst again. He's saying this well will never leak. It's strong. It's eternal. You can always come and drink from it. It'll never be closed off to you. This is a well that stands above your relationships, your achievements, your experiences, and this is a well that will make us content. What is contentment? It's the ability to finally stop and say, hey, I'm good. That's enough. I'm satisfied. And Jesus is pointing to himself. He's saying, I am that well that will never run dry. I am that well that will never leak, that will always be open, that will always be able to satisfy your thirst for every human being. And every outsider who we welcome, you know, there's a great freedom in just being able to point them to this well. Not trying to convince them ourselves with our own experiences even, or our own eloquent words, but we can just point them to this well of unending eternal con contentment that is in Jesus. So we've seen a different welcome, and we've seen a different well in the example of Jesus on mission to this outsider. Finally, we see a different worship for the outsider. So what is this eternal contentment that we're talking about? Let's try to define it. 
as Jesus reveals to this woman that he's the well, the source of living water that she needs, she's amazed. She calls him a prophet, which is a really big deal at the time. She's saying that, oh, you must be someone who comes from God and speaks on his behalf. Well, what's more amazing is that in this moment, she actually recognizes her spiritual thirst and she starts to talk about worship. She says, yes, I have had five husbands and I'm right now I'm with another man and I think you're right. There is something that's missing in my heart. I get it now. But I'm a Samaritan and you're a Jew. We have different places of worship. What do I need to do to satisfy the spiritual thirst? And Jesus' response in verses 21 to 23 is that an hour is coming when it won't matter where the temple is, whether it's in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. And what will matter is that true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth because those are the worshippers God is seeking. Why does the, co- the conversation shift from living water and relationships to worship? It is because eternal com- contentment how do you define that? It's, it's worship. Um, there's a guy called David Foster Wallace. He was a critically acclaimed novelist. He was not a religious man. He spoke to a college graduating class, and this is what he said. Everybody worships. The only choice you get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. It's the truth. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age starts showing, you'll die a million deaths before you actually die. If you worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid. And you'll need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. David Foster Wallace gave this speech and he said this to a graduating class of college students. I'm sure as they were thinking about the next step in life. And a couple of years after giving the speech, David Foster Wallace killed himself. He came to realize that not only does everybody worship, but what we worship for him, he considered all of it. You realize that no matter what I center my life on, it's unforgiving when I fail it. And it will never really make me content when I worship it. And he killed himself. John Piper um, has this great line in his book on missions, Let the Nations Be Glad. He says, missions exists because worship doesn't. And he doesn't just mean the worship of anything. He means true worship, spiritual worship, the worship of God. See, the goal of missions is not to convert people, to get them to come to our church. The goal of missions is worship. The goal of missions is to bring the worship of God to the whole world. If we can make that happen in even one life, that's missions fruitful. There's only one thing in your life that you can worship and it will always forgive you when you fail it. And it will always satisfy you when you worship it. It is a person, Jesus Christ, the Savior. 
Let me break it down for you. He died for your sins. That means when you fail him, no matter how much you fail him, how hard you fail him, he really forgives you because he died for your sins. He bled for your sins. It's amazing. It's amazing that he really forgives you. And here's why when we worship him, he'll always satisfy us. On the cross, on the cross, with his blood pouring down and covering us, he didn't just say, you're forgiven. He said, you are good enough. You're good enough for God. Not because of what you've done, but because of what I've done for you. My standing, my cleanness, my record, I give to you. And to know that means you can finally stop and say, I am good enough. I don't have to work till I die to feel like I'm good enough. When we look at the cross, his blood covers us. And we remember that he said, he declared, it's finished. If you're in me, you're good enough. And he gave us the Holy Spirit, who's God's presence with us. See, the Samaritan woman, she gets it. She leaves her water jar behind when he says that in verse 29. And she goes to her hometown and she starts telling the people in her town about Jesus. The amazing thing is in verse 39, it says, Many Samaritans from that, wom- from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, but we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. When a person is converted from being a non-Christian to a Christian, that is the most miraculous thing I think that we can ever see and experience. It's going from eternal death to eternal life. It's going from blindness to being able to see. And conversion happens Not when you present the gospel to someone attractively or because you invested time in a person or because you convinced that person with your logic. Conversion happens when Jesus speaks to that person personally. Do you notice what it says here? She told them everything that he ever did for her. And then many more believe because of his word And they say to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. We've heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Conversion happens when Jesus personally speaks to the unbeliever. And they hear for themselves and know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Um, I heard my Kiwi pastor mate say this. He said, I'm not going to read it in a (laughs) New Zealand accent. Evangelism (laughs) is one of the few spiritual uh, topics uh, 
Evangelism is one of the few spiritual topics that Christians and non-Christians can agree on. Non-Christians don't like hearing it, and Christians don't like doing it. I think he's got a good point. You know, being on mission, uh, it can involve awkward and discouraging interactions. It can involve rejection, and I'm sure you guys have experienced that. And our experiences can make us lose heart. What I want us to take away today from this passage in John 4 is, I know we've been talking about the example of Jesus, his example of being on mission to the outsider. What I primarily want us to take away from this passage is not to see ourselves in the shoes of Jesus and to try to copy him. I want us to see ourselves primarily in the shoes of this Samaritan woman. Do you know, maybe you do, let me remind you, do you know that you were once an outsider? But God welcomed you extravagantly, differently, not because of anything that you did or because you were welcomable. He welcomed you as a sinner into his kingdom. Do you know that you were once an outsider, but God showed you a different world? You were once someone who went to all these other leaky wells, hoping that they would satisfy you. And then Jesus, in his kindness, did not just welcome you into his kingdom. He said, hey, come and find contentment in the everlasting world. Do you know that you were once an outsider, but God taught you who to worship? That if you center your life on him, you'll be satisfied eternally. Life is amazing. You know, worship is the only thing that starts now and goes on forever. Even after we tie, when we're with him in heaven, we'll be worshiping him forever, centering our lives on him forever. That's got to say something about the power and the gift of worship. See, we do not exist just for our own maturity. I know we've been talking about that a lot. We don't just exist for ourselves. And I know you guys know that on some level, but let me just say it again. We, we exist for the people out there. We exist for the world. We exist to show the world who Jesus is as we mature. How can we begin to change the ways that we've been thinking and living as a church for many years? Because I do get it. Like There's a lot that we went through. There's a lot that happened that caused us to retreat. And then I know even in our individual lives, life gets busy. You, know, you have kids, change jobs. Just dealing with that. But when a newcomer walks into our church, let's welcome them. Let's cross the barriers at minimum of our own seats. Let's go to them and let's have a conversation with them, not trying to manufacture some kind of mood, but let's welcome them because Jesus has welcomed us in such radically different ways. Let's keep that welcome in mind and let's welcome the outsider. We have our launch service coming up in a couple weeks' time. I want to encourage you and even ask you and challenge you, extend an invitation to someone. Because it's not what, 
how great your invitation is that's going to convert that person. Trust that you can invite someone and that Jesus will be the one who speaks to that person. That it may be that very Sunday that they turn up because of your invitation and they hear for themselves and know that this is a savior of the world. I don't have grand ambitions or pictures for mission just yet. I just want to start here together as a church community. Let us welcome the outsider. Let's point them to a different well, Jesus. Let's teach them how to worship as they gather with us. Let's start there. Let's pray. Father, we know that you have a heart for the lost. You have a heart of compassion for people who are in darkness and don't know you. And for far too long, we've taken our salvation, I think, just for granted. Like, it's been great growing together. It's been great having intimacy within our own community. But Lord, um, I must confess that we have been insular. We have been just very comfortable. We've become like that life-saving station in some ways. And I thank you that your word challenges us today to bring us out of that shell and that kind of thinking. I thank you that you remind us that you have welcomed us into your kingdom radically and differently and that we can do the same. And I thank you that your word also comforts us because it's actually not down to us to see someone come to know you genuinely. We just point people to you, the source of living water. But if we teach them what it means to worship you, uh, everything will be in your hands. People will come to you. People will come to know you and be saved. That glorifies you and that matures us. Help us to do that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.